And this show is being recorded live on TalkShoe, September 25th, 2009, Friday 6pm for those who are interested. Well, for folks interested in participating, this is a, a new format for uh, Model Rail Podcasts. This is an open internet radio format. All the episodes will be available for download in the feed. I'm not interested in taking any sponsors. I'm interested in folks who listen, calling in and participating. And it's completely listener-generated in terms of the content. In order to submit possible topics, please go to modelrailradio.com, modelrailradio, all one word. There'll be a mailing list on the site uh, if you want to participate in the kind of pre-show discussions. And also there'll be information about when the next show will be recorded. I'm relatively open with regards to uh, the recording times. I record my other podcast typically every other Friday at 8 p.m. Pacific. Uh, however, I'm willing to record this show at the 6 p.m. Pacific time in order to cover both coasts of the United States. It's also a, a relatively good time for folks in Australia and Southeast Asia to call in. And for folks in Europe, it's slightly more difficult. However, I'm interested in recording at other times too, so please get in contact with me. My email address is tom at modelrailradio.com, all one word. And yeah, suggest show topics, suggest show times, and uh, please participate. This is, this is as much your show as it is mine. And um, a little background on who I am. Well, I've been recording podcasts for about four years now, and I've... Uh, I've liked the Model Rail podcasts that have been recorded to date. However, I kind of saw that there was a niche opening up with regards to entry-level and intermediate information uh, associated with uh, creating a, a, a small shelf layout, possibly uh, you know, a four-foot by eight-foot layout, this kind of space, but also uh, regional re railroads, international railroads, just a wide variety of things that weren't being covered in the other podcasts, and also fundamental model railroading information, the kind of stuff that basically is uh, perhaps sold or told on uh, DVDs and books, but also stuff that folks have, uh, have generated which may go against the norm associated with model railroading, and that was really my interest with regards to starting this show, was to get a number of contributors, uh, be they novice, intermediate, or even advanced uh, listeners to call in and participate and just get some kind of discussion going associated with a wide variety of things which aren't typically covered in the other podcasts or through uh, the various magazines and books. So the topics that I wanted to cover in no particular order this evening were uh, Google Maps and how to utilize Google Maps with regards to creating a, a contemporary railroad some experiences that I have had with regards to electronic uh, track planning software and also actually uh, doing an initial layout, which kind of 
went against some of the um, conventional wisdom that seems to exist in the, at least the commercial aspect of the model railroading hobby, whether or not it exists in the uh, grassroots element is another thing. And also I wanted to give a little bit of background about who I was and my kind of model railroading and general railroading experiences because I've, I won't necessarily say I've had the luck, but I've certainly lived in a number of parts of the world and travelled on a number of different regional railroads. And I think in my own kind of model railroading interest, it, it pretty well touches on the regions that I've lived and some of the experiences that I've had. So I thought I might start with that just to give some background to who I am. Well, whilst my accent doesn't sound like it, I currently live in Las Vegas, Nevada. And prior to living in Las Vegas, Nevada, I lived in a place called Wilmslow in the UK, which is on, on a pretty major rail route, um, pretty well between Manchester and London. Wilmslow is, I think, probably the second to last stop. It's also uh, between Manchester and Crewe, a relatively critical junction point. So I lived in Wilmslow and it was wonderful actually because I could, you know, walk half a mile, get on a train uh, and be pretty well anywhere in the UK. So it was a very nice location in terms of bottle railroading potential and also real railroading potential. Prior to that, I lived in the San Francisco Bay Area. Actually, I spent a bit of time in Leicester as well. Leicester is also possibly a, a point of interest for model railroaders. But I lived in the San Francisco Bay Area, and obviously a lot of trains go through that part of the world. Prior to living in the Bay Area, I um, had done a lot of travelling. My background, I'm a, a software engineer, but I was working with a lot of startups at the time and you know, living the kind of Bay Area dream in that regard. Having done a lot of flying for about three and a half months before I officially moved to the Bay Area in the end of 1999, I decided that I was going to spend a year without flying. And I traveled all over the US by train, by Amtrak and also up into Canada. And that gave me a really interesting set of experiences in terms of seeing a a wide variety of geographies, seeing a wide variety of industries, and also getting a sense of the kind of regional flavours. I mean, obviously, people get on and off passenger trains as they come through, and I got to meet a lot of people, including some rail fans through particular areas. But it also gave me a, an interest, and this really goes outside the kind of Boston-New England corridor that seems to be a popular interest, and obviously down into Pennsylvania for a lot of, well, at least the people that talk and are published in uh, model railroader, but the, the areas that interested me were really almost from Cincinnati to Chicago, the kind of break, the broken down element of uh, the kind of America's industry, you know, a lot of old factories that had never quite been picked up and these kind of things. And I, I quite like that kind of engineering structural, but also quite dilapidated element that you see through those regions. So anyway, in my kind of recursive uh, history back through my life prior to living in the Bay Area, I lived in Australia, but also I spent some time in Southeast Asia and I travelled uh, around by train through Malaysia and Thailand in particular. And that in itself was an interesting kind of geographical experience, although I'd never really consider uh, modelling those areas, although I'm sure there were a number of striking things that one could model in those areas. And in Australia as well, I did quite a bit of travelling around by, uh, by train too. I also travelled through Europe by train and you know, various other areas. So my interests with regards to... Uh, Model railroading always, in some regard, have a passenger component, although modelling Las Vegas as I am currently in, in N-scale, there's not really a passenger component with that. But I've certainly seen a lot of railroads the, the world over, primarily as a, as a passenger travelling by train. And really, in terms of the kind of textures and the, 
the, all the possibilities that um, these various areas offer. I think that was certainly my, my experience. But anyway, so I've ended up in Las Vegas, Nevada, having done all those travels. And certainly the regional railroads have, have captivated me as well. I mean, there's not, a lot of, there's not a lot of heavy rail that goes on in Las Vegas. There's no passenger rail, which in and of itself is a great travesty. I think the Amtrak station closed down in 1996. I did comprehend initially... Uh, creating a kind of what-if scenario and maintaining the Amtrak station in my uh, regional model railroad of Las Vegas, but uh, decided against it after some forethought. But the industries that are serviced in Las Vegas are an interesting case study, and I want to use this to kind of move into my next topic this evening, which is using Google Maps as a primary source for creating model railroads. And this is something that uh, merits some, uh, some degree of detail so anyway, I wanted to talk a little bit about Google Maps and how I used Google Maps in order to plan out and actually um, do some rail fanning with regards to the local railroad system. I think a similar model could be used pretty well anywhere in the world with modern model railroading. And the system that I used with regards to Google Maps was to really scan the areas that were available to me to model and also start looking at the kind of sectional areas that would make good uh, good kind of vignettes, good uh, elements in a, a model railroad that could capture certain locations, certain aspects of industry and the kind of things that I wanted to uh, model. What I ended up with was an N-scale layout, which is about, I think, maybe four feet by eight feet, the kind of classic cliche. Actually, it's a bit longer than eight feet. It's probably more like nine and a half feet long, so just a little bit more area. But I wanted to model this in Las Vegas because it gave me local rail fanning potential ability to go to locations and take photographs. I also wanted to use sectional track. This is my first, well, I don't want to say my first serious model railroad, but it's my first, um, it's my first model railroad in the current location. So I wanted to make it, um, you know, with the contemporary Atlas track. I had uh, some software that I was using, and the sections that I looked for to model had certain requirements in terms of them being not too big and not too small, but also having just a diversity of uh, modelling potential. Firstly, let's talk a little bit about Google Maps and how you actually utilise it to do this. There were two views that I used in Google Maps. The first was obviously a, a map view uh, without much detail at all, and I used that to scan for the tracks and where the tracks were actually going. There is not a one-to-one -one comparison between what you see in the Google Map view and what you see in the Google Satellite view. They really only do sketches with regards to the uh, railroad tracks, and that was something that took a, a bit of use and uh, sense before I could understand that uh, you know what was what was shown as a drawn track wasn't necessarily always actually really a, a track underneath. So by flicking between the satellite view and the map view. I had a short list of maybe a dozen possible locations that I wanted to uh, include in my layout. And I went through a series of processes to kind of whittle this down. When I had probably half a dozen locations, my wife and I, my wife is an avid um, digital photographer, went to the various locations that actually took photographs and got a sense of what the locations looked like on the ground. Now, to give some background to this, there is a, a section in North Las Vegas that interested me in particular. It's off... Uh, quite a major road called uh, Craig, and it was a section that was probably about, I don't know, maybe 200 yards long at most, and it contained three quite well-established industries and uh, a kind of a series of uh, tracks that came off those industries, and I thought this is probably the densest 
use of track in all of Las Vegas. There were lots of large kind of freighting loops and other things that I could uh, build on my layout. But this particular section struck me as being both very interesting in terms of the number of turnouts per distance, but also the potential to model three quite different industries. Another place that I looked at was the Ocean Spray Bottling Plant. And the Ocean Spray Bottling Plant had a couple of interesting features which I thought made it very worthwhile to to include. The first part was that there was a slight, or actually quite a a pronounced uh, loop that led into just a single switch and two off tracks from the single switch. In parallel to this, there was a wide variety of obviously things carrying the juice and things carrying the water, and there was a large water pipe that ran parallel to the tracks too. So I thought this was a simple industry to model and also something that, you know, had some contemporary connection and would be useful to include. The rest of the surrounds associated with the ocean spray plant were all desert. So in that regard, we were a relatively easy modelling task as well. My wife and I also went to a location that I think was used in kind of um, light cargo. Two tracks, once again, coming off from a switch, and one with a kind of high or um, probably three or four foot high lift area and another with a kind of ramped lift area on the other side of the tracks. And this seemed to be a possible industry in terms of just having some kind of light cargo industry on the layout. We also then went to quite a dense industrial area that seemed to have uh, a lot of petroleum processing and other kind of chemical processing related industries. And this would be by far the largest part of the layout if I in fact chose to model it. I decided against modeling it primarily because all that it would allow is a series of yards basically that would just have a lot of tank cars on the yard and not really a lot of other modelling potential. It wouldn't be a kind of contributive industry to the kind of narrative associated with the the layout. Now, originally, um, my wife and I moved into a new... Well, moved into a house in November of last year, and originally I was going to use the house's garage area in order to to have the layout. However, the temperature fluctuations in Las Vegas mean would meant that the layout would probably have only been useful for probably six months of the year, possibly four months of the year, and it really didn't suit itself well to um, general all-year-round bottling. So what I did was actually maintain, in a digital format, a series of track layouts associated with the various industries that I had visited Also with the view that if I was going to create a layout, either a shelf layout or potentially a table layout, as I ended up creating, these industries could easily be slotted onto the uh, the layout. And I think a combination of scouting these areas with Google Maps, laying them out in my electronic track editor, and then having the context of the photographs on the ground all gave me a sense of what was actually going to go on the layout when I... uh, came to laying track. Now, through the fluctuations of the contemporary economy, a number of things have occurred over uh, since when I first started designing the layout when we moved into this house and, and here we are today. Without going into too many details, companies closing, all this kind of stuff, jobs changing, uh, some international travel. So the layout took me slightly longer than I originally thought in order to gradually start laying the track. But a couple of things interested me, and this is the third component that I wanted to share in this uh, podcast recording this evening. The first is that my experience is this is an N-scale layout. I've specified that already, but I want to reiterate that. I've never had any experience with regards to N-scale previously. Some of my experiences with regards to HO map onto N and others just didn't. In some kind of list of the experiences that I had, I was trying a well, for me, a relatively new technique 
and that is using something called camper tape in the process of laying the track. Now, camper tape is now pretty well known. It's gotten quite a bit of publicity over the past six months, and I think uh, if not in Model Railroad or explicitly in one of their booklets, there was some discussion associated with camper tape and shielding. But I thought with an N-scale layout, the camper tape gave just the right kind of height and really with regards to soundproofing, the kind of engine noise, or not the engine noise, but the... Uh, the actual motor noise that the uh, model railroad engines make is louder than any possible sound that they would be making in, in N-scale, or certainly the engines that I have access to. So my plan was to, to try the camper tape method out, and the method that I used was exactly the same as proposed in model railroad, or I used a window silicate, applied a layer of window silicate, or window caulking, that's the, that's the term that's used in, in this part of the world, applied a layer of window caulking, initially laid the camper tape on top of that, applied another layer of window caulking, and then put the track on top of that. And the beauty of the camper tape, which wasn't actually mentioned in the, the model railroad use, is that you can apply a craft knife, um, what I would call a, a Stanley knife, or a, what do you call them here, box cutters, I guess, along the camper tape. And actually, with a with a flat spatula tool, you can actually lift off the excess camper tape. In terms of curves, in terms of actually moving it as close to the track as possible or giving some kind of, uh, you know, effect, raised effect, you can, with a, a bit of light work with regards to uh, applying a box cutter after the fact, you can create quite a, a convincing rise to actually laying the track on top. And it's a technique which took me probably halfway around the layout before I actually mastered the skill. Now, in future, I've been debating whether or not I'd actually use camper tape. I'm planning a shelf layout currently to, to cover some of the bases that I wasn't able to cover in the table layout. And I think on the shelf layout, I probably won't use camper tape. I'll probably just apply the track directly with the layer of silicate with the view that the kind of stuff that I'll be modelling is relatively flat and won't necessarily have any rises either. I mean, just basically a, probably a flat yard with a few additional features and uh, maybe some gradients put in there. But my feeling was that the camper tape for this particular application was an effect that was a learnt skill. The purpose of applying the window silicate first just enables you to lift off the excess camper tape after you've cut it. It basically provides a a time-dependent uh, glue as opposed to just using this sticky residue associated with the camper tape. So the technique that I had there also involved soldering the tracks, and this is something that I don't think I'll ever do again in N-scale. I think the techniques associating with soldering the underneath of the track ties or the actual connecting uh, metal is probably a far better technique. The method I had used was actually connecting all the track together and then soldering at various sections drop-wise. And the combination of factors, probably the cheapness of my soldering iron and also the nature of the ties and the difficulty associated with doing the drop wires didn't really produce a pleasing effect. I mean, I was able to get it very clean. I was able to file everything down and things look very neat. And as you run your eye along it, you probably won't notice anything. But I found, and I was using uh, Atlas 55 track here for Ensdale, I found that the connections that just by sliding the tracks together made, and this is a relatively small layout, this isn't huge, I'm not going for you know, 20, 50 feet. But the connection alone of just pushing the track together was enough to get really good electrical conductivity. Now, I had heard through previous podcasts and obviously Model Railroad or other related magazines that it was critical to solder every track section. And thankfully, I didn't do that. But I was doing probably every foot and a half to every two feet with regards to a drop wire. And I think in future, I probably won't even do that. I will just make sure that the various connectors that I'm using are, are soldered and, and maintain a charge. With 
regards to the turnouts, I will use a, a powered frog. I haven't dropped the wires for the powered frog yet. You've got to appreciate the track has been laid, things have been electrified. I've run DC around the track just to test out all the conductivity in the various rails, but that's the state that my model railroad, my N-scale Las Vegas model railroad is in currently. And uh, my plan is basically to uh, to promote updates through this podcast and, and general discussion associated with that. This has been a somewhat shortened first episode associated with Model Rail Radio and the plan into the future is actually to have other callers, other contributors and to have the listeners make the show what it needs to be. It won't just be another long monologue associated with me and my experiences but will hopefully be a set of discussions. One topic I did want to end with was with regards to my experience with Australian model railroading and also my experience as a child, which kind of led me into an interest in railroads and model railroading. When I was a boy, and this is, goes against some of the kind of standard cliches associated with this, I was given a model railroad associated with Australia made by a Spanish manufacturer called Lima, actually. The railroad was called the Overlander, and... My recollection was it went through Central Australia, but recent reviews seem to indicate that it went from, uh, well, through Melbourne towards Adelaide and possibly even through um, New South Wales. Well, my, re- my recollection associated with this isn't particularly good. So when I went back to Australia in March this year, I was interested in, you know, getting a sense of the local model railroading community and what folks did, particularly in N-scale, because having moved to the US, I've started an interest in N-scale. I wasn't really aware of any Australian N-scale manufacturers or in thing to do with, you know, that. I knew there was HO with Lima. Through investigation, Lima is no longer in existence. I think the company closed officially in about 2004. You can still get Australian Lima-related stuff on eBay, but, you know, none of the modern stuff, well, the modern stuff is made up until they stop trading, obviously. But with regards to kind of later modern stuff and also N-Scale in Australia, I mean, N-Scale in Australia is a series of kits which you place on top of Atlas models. You take off the upper chassis and you put a one of the indigenous Australian companies' chassis on top. It's quite an interesting possibility for model railroaders, particularly for folks who are familiar with the kind of vast US, uh, UK and European market. In fact, the one of the fellows I know in Australia who's an avid model railroader whose layout I saw when I was in Australia models the UK because it's far easier to get UK-related trains rather than Australian ones. And I don't know much about African trains or South American trains or even Asian trains. I mean, I know there's a Japanese train market and I'm sure there are train markets that are regional to various regional trains, but I get the sense that Australia is probably one of the most barbaric train markets out there in terms of actually not getting access to any of the modern stuff or any of the historical stuff. I mean, obviously there's some overlap, and you get this even with US trains in the UK. Uh, There's some overlap with certain designs and certain manufacturers and certain appearances associated with trains, but every part of the world has its own regional train flavour, and Certainly, coming from Australia and going back to Australia briefly, you do get a sense that uh, the Australian, well, the UK market and the US market in particular are very well serviced. And these other regional rail modelers who are trying to actually capture elements of their own experiences have a very interesting time of it. I actually want to feature some of this stuff in in model rail radio because I think the skill set involved with uh, 
tuning, tweaking and creating various railroad systems throughout the world that may not necessarily be commercially created uh, is something that is a skill set in and of itself and something that I certainly find quite fascinating personally. In the US you can actually get uh, access and even in N-scale to, uh, to UK model rail, engines and cars and various other things so it's not really that isolated in terms of uh, other other regions, railroads but I thought the Australian case was particularly interesting and I'm, certainly I'm interested in in folks in Australia who model Australian railroads and similarly I'm in folks in South America and folks in Africa I'd be fascinated to hear from model railroaders in in those parts of the world too with regards to how they actually uh, create their their model railroading environments and what it takes to make regional uh, railroads come to life in their modelling experiences. Anyway, like I said, I'm Tom Barbelay. This is Model Rail Radio. It's completely listener-generated content. If you're listening to this for the first time and you want to participate, hopefully there'll be a few other few other episodes in the feed by the time you're listening to this, but certainly go to the site, Model Rail Radio, all one word. We'll have more information when the next call-in show is operating. Also, we'll have a mailing list on the site, and you'll be able to read my bio and contact me directly, tom at modelrailradio.com. Thank you very much for listening in this evening. I'm Tom Barberley. Good night. <laughs>